This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c Welcome to this episode where I have Dr. Jordan Glitzman. He is an ear, nose, and throat surgeon in private practice at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Massachusetts, and he's a part-time lecturer at Harvard Medical School. We are talking about ear tubes today. If you have not listened to the other episode we recorded today um, about tonsils and adenoids, make sure you listen to that one. Welcome, Jordan. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, again, I'm so excited that we could record two episodes and get this education out there. On this episode, we're talking about ear tubes. Um, and so if you listen to the other episode, we talked about indications of needing your tonsils and adenoids removed for your child. But in this one, we're talking about ear tubes. So my first question is, when do we say, hey, ear tubes may be something a child may need? Yeah, that's a great question. And Probably the most important one whenever we're talking about a surgical procedure is making sure that we're choosing uh, the right uh, thing for the right child. So probably the most common uh, two reasons that we see are for children that get a lot of ear infections and then also children that have a fluid in their ears for a prolonged period of time, causing them with difficulty with speech development. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. typically because the fluid restricts their ability to hear and if they don't hear well, then it becomes hard to replicate speech that they're hearing in their environment. And then there's a lot of other uh, more specific uh, situations, including if a patient has a complication because of an ear infection uh, or uh, a child that's flying a lot with their parents and getting ear pain when they, when they travel or uh, some other much more rare uh, indications or reasons for having tubes put in. And so we're going to get into more of like the purpose of an ear tube and like what it kind of does physiologically. But I want to talk about the two main ones that you mentioned, the speech and the recurrent ear infection. So for the recurrent ear infections, I know there are guidelines, but in terms of how many and what time frame? What are the current recommendations that a parent should say, hey, doc, their pediatrician, my child has had X amount. Maybe it's time that we need to discuss seeing a specialist. Yeah. So you're a pediatrician. I'm an ear, nose and throat surgeon. And uh, just like with uh, tonsils and adenoids, there are joint guidelines that have been put out by both societies. And the general consensus is having three episodes of ear infections in a six month time period or four episodes in 12 months. If one of the episodes was in the prior six months. So we're looking at about three and a half a year or four in a year. And one thing that's important is we want to make sure there's still fluid in the ear before we actually go ahead and put tubes in. Yeah. So parents often ask, like, is it right? So is it that we don't want them to be on recurrent antibiotics or is it that the ear infection can cause that fluid, which can subsequently cause the hearing concern? Like what is more important? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's all very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think having a lot of ear infections and being on antibiotics a lot is not a good thing. We live in a world where antibiotics have been around for a long period of time and bacteria have found ways to evade our antibiotics. And we don't want to be in a situation where if a child had a more serious infection, that they weren't able to use antibiotics to overcome that bacteria. And furthermore, that they don't pass on bacteria to others in their family uh, that could have that same problem. But also their speech development is important. It's important that we're able to communicate with each other and learn to communicate with each other. And these are such important years in a child's life when they're typically very young that they're having these problems. We want them to really maximize their potential. So I think both of those issues are very important to keep in mind and would be reasons that typically a family would elect to potentially go ahead and have the procedure done. And maybe some of our listeners aren't aware, but how can issues with fluid and what we're talking about, how can that impact speech? Like kind of on a physiological level, yeah. Sure. Uh, So if you think about the the hearing apparatus, we have the outer ear, which is the ear canal. Uh, Then we've got the eardrum, which kind of divides the middle ear space from that outer ear canal. And then from that eardrum, there's then three bones that vibrate and then they stimulate uh, an organ called the cochlea. And that cochlea is how we sense the actual noise once the sound has gone through the ear canal, through that middle space by passing through the eardrum and the bones and then into the cochlea. And typically the bones are sitting in just air uh, in the middle ear space and it's well ventilated with air, but fluid can build up in that space. And it's similar to trying to go for a run on a track versus trying to go for a run on the beach in the water. And when you have that fluid there, it doesn't let the bones move as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same as if you were trying to run in the water. And that doesn't allow the the sound waves to get from wherever the sound was coming from to the cochlea as well. Uh, And that can cause a bit of a hearing loss, almost as if uh, you were wearing earplugs all the time that you can't take out. Oh, that's a great way. Thank you so much for that explanation. Of course, leave it to my friend, the surgeon, to explain it so concisely and perfectly. (laughs) I love that. Um, I just I think that's so great. And I think it's important because sometimes parents don't understand kind of how that works and why a tube, which we'll get into, could be a benefit. Um, In terms of, as obviously just to kind of elaborate, we need all that um, because in order to produce language, we need to hear sounds and hear words. So of course that, like Jordan's saying, it's all important. Now kind of going into more about the speech. So when you have a child coming in, are you typically doing like testing to see what their hearing is doing and then monitoring if they have hearing loss or what that's looking like before deciding to do tubes? Yeah, uh, every child that comes in gets a hearing test, and we look to see if there actually is a a, a noticeable difference in their ability to hear uh, compared to their peers. Um, So every every single child gets a a hearing test done uh, of some kind uh, to make sure that they are an appropriate candidate for the procedure, uh, and also to get a sense of what we're dealing with, what what kind of uh, challenges they're trying to overcome. Not every child that has difficulty with speech uh, unfortunately, uh, has a simple solution like putting uh, tubes in uh, to overcome a, a hearing loss. Uh, mm-hmm. And if we can f- also find, you know, potentially another cause uh, for their uh, hearing loss, or for the, or if it's not hearing loss for their uh, speech delay, uh, that's also very important. So we play a role uh, in that sense as well. Just out of curiosity, I know you're an ENT, so I'm just curious what you think. Do you feel like um, most children who have a speech delay should just get a hearing test just to rule that out before uh, you know yeah. going to, yeah. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got a simple solution, you know, problem that you can very easily find, you know, this is the problem. I, I can't see a reason why I wouldn't get a hearing test. Every child when they're born gets a hearing test now. Right. In the uh, and I think if there's any question as to there being some kind of speech delay, that's definitely a go-to from my perspective. 
you know, I, I see no harm in that at all. Well, I agree. Um, you know, in residency, I learned that, um, that, hey, speech delay, especially obviously we're talking about those taller years, right? Um, definitely it's just a quick, benign, non-invasive test that's done um, and just to make sure. And then in practice, I find that sometimes like some of my colleagues don't. And I, you know, I ask them, I'm like, why not? I do like to do a hearing test. And I explain it exactly like that. I say, hey, look, it's just one thing we can just make sure because if that's the issue, we need to go to ENT. And if that's not the issue, then we can go to speech therapy um, or both. Right. So it's really yeah. important. I think that that's it really is just one test that is really beneficial. Um, definitely. Definitely. If your child had recurrent ear infections or concern of fluid or whatever it is, definitely should be getting that hearing test. I agree 100 percent. But it's a it's a quick procedure. Well, I won't say quick, but it's a procedure that is benign. When I say benign, like not invasive. It's really, I've seen them happen. I've had, my son has had to do it. So I really think it's something to consider when your child does have speech delay. So I'm happy that you said that. Yeah. And, and actually one, one of the nice things about it is that any, any audiologist that works with kids, you know, enjoys working with them and they really try to make it into a game that the kids enjoy mm-hmm. uh, if they're old enough to, to appreciate it. Uh, and, you know, I, I've actually heard from many parents that their child actually enjoyed the hearing test. Uh, so it's kind of nice that way as well. Oh yeah. Same thing in residency when I had to go to the pediatric audiologist and it was so awesome. Like they had the little stuffed animals, like they can rotate to, it's like the lights turn on. I, I found it very fun too. Um, and then my son, my son had to get it for some of his medical history stuff and it was, it was fun. I actually really enjoyed it and he tolerated it perfectly. So it was, it was great. Um, so I really appreciate you kind of going into obviously the recurrent ear infections and the speech. Uh, in terms of the purpose of an ear tube, you know, we talked about fluid. What exactly does the ear tube do to help this issue? Yeah. So if you think about the purpose uh, of the middle ear, it's to be a, a place where those bones can transfer that information from the eardrum to the cochlea. It has this uh, structure in it called the eustachian tube. And the eustachian tube equalizes pressure uh, in this space. Uh, kind of like if you're in space in a, in a, uh, or, or going for a dive in a uh, submarine, yeah. uh, there's that little chamber that, that, that takes care of making sure that the pressure gets equalized you know, before you, you know, leave the, the device that you're traveling in. And that eustachian tube in children, unfortunately, is smaller because kids are smaller. And also it's at a different orientation um, that makes it a little bit more difficult uh, for uh, it to open in some cases. And so uh, that, that tube, if it, if it doesn't have the ability to drain the ear or get air into the ear, uh, then you end up in a situation uh, where fluid can build up and then those bones can't work uh, as we talked about earlier. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. 
Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Margaret and I'm Amy and together we host the podcast What Fresh Hell laughing in the face of motherhood. Margaret I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. The rule of the tube is to have a second opening. And what that second opening does is it lets the ear eustachian tube do its job better. Uh, similar to if you had like a, a, a giant can of apple juice. When I was a kid, they used to have these tins in Canada where you'd, you'd have a can opener and you'd punch a hole in one side. And if you did that on the one side, you could pour, but it wouldn't pour so well. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you put a hole on the other side, air could get in and then the fluid can get out. Uh, or the other analogy I like to make is if you have a straw and you put it in water and put your thumb on top of the straw, and then you can walk around with the water. But if you take your thumb off of uh, the top of the straw, then the water can drain. Uh, a tube is very similar. It gives you that second hole so it can drain better. And so, yeah, so when you're, put, when you're doing the procedure, you're, you're putting the tube into the, essentially the eardrum. Yeah, the tube goes right into the eardrum. Uh, we try to stay low in the ear uh, to avoid uh, the bones. And also uh, there's, an, there's a couple important nerves that travel a little bit higher up that we want to avoid. Um, but yeah, we, we put it right into the eardrum. And the nice thing is that uh, in the vast majority of cases, when the tube either falls out or if it stays in for a long time is taken out, uh, the eardrum is able to heal itself spontaneously, uh, which is fantastic because it avoids a second operation to patch it up. And is it usually under general anesthesia or is it um, in terms of like, what's the, um, obviously we're doing pain meds for for the procedure, but what does that kind of look like in the operating room? Yeah. So uh, if you ever came to me for your tubes, I would probably uh, try to offer you to do it in the office if you're comfortable with that. But mm-hmm. uh, children tend to move. Children uh, tend to get a little bit uh, more easily upset than adults. Uh, and also it's being done under a microscope. And so little movements become big movements. And we, we'd like our patients to be as still as possible when we're working under a microscope. So for all of those reasons, uh, and also just to make it a better experience for the child, uh, most importantly, uh, we, we typically do it with the child 
uh, sleep in the operating room. Uh, the parents will typically come back with the child, my hospital for sure, and at most hospitals, uh, for them to go to sleep and have someone uh, there to accompany them that they're comfortable with. And once they go to sleep, we typically don't even put a breathing tube in. Uh, they typically uh, have the anesthetic administered through, the, through a mask that they, that they breathe through uh, spontaneously in most cases. Uh, we put the tubes in uh, by looking with a microscope. If there's wax in the way, we'll clear it out. But otherwise, we just make a little cut uh, in the eardrum, just big enough to put these tiny tubes in that, uh, that you don't need a microscope to see, but you certainly need a microscope to put them in. Um, and um, yeah, once, once the tubes uh, are in place, the anesthetic is weaned off. They just get oxygen through the mask. They wake up and we deliver them uh, back to the recovery room. And once they're ready for their parents, the parents come in, give them a big hug and they're off uh, to go home. And in terms of the recovery, we know when they leave the from the procedure at home, is there anything major that they watch out for? I know we talked about in the tonsils and adenoids um, episode that sometimes, you know, obviously cold liquids, things like that. But for the ear, is there anything special that's different? Not really. Uh, yeah. Tubes are not very painful. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, most uh, kids don't even realize that they have them, which is fantastic, uh, except for the parents telling them they have to be a little bit careful in the water when it comes to diving and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, no, uh, I typically give parents uh, some antibiotic drops that we put in during the surgery itself um, to go home with and uh, take a couple drops a couple times a day in, in any ear that gets a tube put into it. Uh, and that's just to prevent there from being, sometimes you can get a little bit of a gross drainage that comes out and it just keeps that under control. Uh, but other, otherwise, uh, really, there's not much to it. I don't encourage this, but I've had some parents even take their kids to school uh, later in the day after their surgery. I typically find out about that after the fact and uh, I'm a little surprised and shocked every time. But uh, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's great. No, this is so helpful. Now, in terms of like once you put them in, how long do they stay in for? Is there um, a situation where we actively remove them or do we let them outgrow it where they just fall out on their own? What's kind of the recommendations behind that? Yeah, it depends on the kind of tube you're putting in. In the mm-hmm. vast majority of cases, we're putting in a temporary tube, especially for a first set of tubes. We're almost always putting in a temporary tube and they typically last about six to 12 months. And I have seen them fall out much faster, which can be a little frustrating because if, you, if they fall out faster, you're probably putting them back in. Um, and if they fall out uh, in the 6 to 12 month mark, the child actually has an opportunity to outgrow the problem. As they get bigger, as the orientation of that eustachian tube changes, um, there's a reasonable chance that they won't need them again, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, and if they do need them again, if they continue to have whatever the problem was that led them to have the tubes put in, or you know, in cases of, say, a child has Down syndrome, uh, or another syndrome that we know puts them at a higher risk of needing recurrent tubes, we may just go ahead and put the tubes in because we want to give the child the, the best chance of having the best development possible. But in the vast majority of cases where the child's completely healthy otherwise, uh, we'll typically give it a shot to see if the problem goes away before we put another set in. And I know, you know, we t- we're talking again about the ear tubes and the procedure and whatnot, but um, recurrent ear infections are obviously one of the reasons why uh, a child may end up needing it. In terms of anatomy, right, why are children more prone to ear infections than, say, adults? Um, yeah, so in terms of anatomy, it has to do with the eustachian tube itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, children have a narrower eustachian tube, and the orientation of it tends to be more horizontal. That means if they're having any kind of regurgitation that gets into the one side of the eustachian tube, it's more likely to be able to kind of get back because it's horizontal. Those are, those are probably the two biggest reasons uh, why children tend to get it. Uh, the other thing is that children often are in daycare and around mm-hmm. a lot more other people uh, than adults are around in a given day. And uh, well, you're a pediatrician, so you see this all the time when, when kids are in daycare or in the classroom, they tend to get sick more than 
when they're outside playing in the summer, you know, in other uh, circumstances. Yeah, and I know we're recording this in the pandemic, and we were mentioning how there has, I mean, the amount of ear infections I'm seeing now are way reduced than what I normally see because children are just not as much around other children. And if they are in daycare, there's way more precautions being taken with germs. Absolutely. And it's funny, like, you know, a big part of what I do is doing surgeries that either prevent or treat uh, the sequela of recurrent infections. And that's not been a big part of my practice over the last 12 months, Mm. uh, probably because people are wearing masks and staying away from other people more. And we can debate the benefits and drawbacks of of those, but that really just has been what we've experienced uh, in our practice over the last year. And uh, hopefully as we get back to normal with life, you know, we don't go back to having a lot of these infections, but I suspect uh, over the next couple of years, we're going to start to see an increase uh, back to where we used to be. Another question I have, and I don't know if there's data that I obviously you're going to know more than this. A lot of parents, you know, will say, well, I had tubes when I was a kid. So my child, you know, may have it too. Like commonly I hear that. Do you, is there any genetic predisposition? Um, does that have to do with anatomy? Do you hear any of that coming from parents? I mean, there's absolutely some of the more rare conditions like that. Yeah. Down syndrome and uh, DeGeorge, um, and, you know, some, some of those kind of more rare conditions uh, definitely have a genetic component to it. I, I'm not aware of studies that have shown that if one parent uh, had the problem that their child uh, is likely to have it too, but uh, it probably, it would surprise me if that wasn't the case. I definitely have uh, treated a lot of, you know, first children in the family and then gone in to treat the second and then the third. So, right. uh, you know, that, that definitely anecdotally seems to be the case. Right. And then, of course, we have to think about, well, what are the other factors in the home? Like in terms of I know we were talking about, um, is there anything a family can do to prevent fluid or potential ear infections? Uh, You mentioned things like daycare with all the germs. Obviously, we can't always avoid that. Um, We just take the best precautions we can. But is there anything else that a family can do if they are prone to ear infections in their child? Yeah, I think smoking is Mm -hmm. the biggest one. It's also very tough. I respect that uh, it's a very difficult habit to quit. Uh, mm-hmm. But you kind of get a two for one deal once you start to have kids because it's good for you. It's good for your partner. It's good for your children. Uh, it can yeah. become a two, three, four for one deal depending on uh, your living situation and how many children you have and who you live with. Um, so if, if they can avoid being exposed to secondhand smoke, that's great. And then uh, the other thing is uh, feeding. So uh, when you're feeding your children, if they're laying on their back more when you're bottle feeding or breastfeeding, that can cause more regurgitation up towards the eustachian tubes. If they're more vertical, then it's more likely to drain away from the eustachian tubes and get less reflux uh, up into the middle ear, uh, which can feed an infection. Okay, this, this is great to know. And I, I know a lot of my families, you know, when they want to do a lot of nasal saline, things like that, is there any utility in doing that if they're sick? I mean, it's going to help the symptoms of the cold, but is that really going to help prevent an ear infection? Um, I, I don't know that it's going to help uh, yeah. prevent an ear infection. I don't think it's going to hurt, though. Uh, as long as the child tolerates it, you know, th- there are certainly benefits, especially if the child's having nasal symptoms uh, to using the spray. And if it does help with that, with an ear infection, uh, I don't know that it would, but uh, if it could, that would be just a secondary benefit as far as I'd be concerned. Um, another question I had is, you know, in, in our practice as general pediatricians, we talk a lot about watchful waiting for ear infections. And I have a YouTube video coming about what that means. But what are your feelings as an ENT? Do you think it's appropriate if a pediatrician watches and waits in certain situations? Yeah, I think those guidelines are excellent. Um, I don't want to go through the whole table, and I'm sure your video is going to go through it uh, in in much more detail than what we'll talk about here. Uh, But I don't think every single ear infection needs to be treated. Uh, A lot of them are viral. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that if the child's at risk uh, for complications uh, or if the child's having very severe symptoms, then certainly it can be helpful. That being said, if the child's doing well and they're not at risk, 
and they're old enough that they can overcome the infection on their own, I think it's very reasonable to just watch and see how they do as long as the physician and the parents are comfortable with it. And I'm not going to say it's within the guidelines because obviously we, we don't do everything just because it's in the guidelines. Right. Uh, but you know, following those guidelines, I think is a very safe thing to do. And I definitely think that it's reasonable to watch and wait, you know, if the child is appropriate for it. Right. And I think, and that's why it's so important um, to have a pediatrician clinician that you have good follow up with and you have good trust with, because um, I like, I personally do a lot of watchful waiting, but I'm very clear on the follow up. I'm very clear on what we're monitoring when we have recurrent ear infections coming on, even if we treated it or not. Uh, So that's great. I love hearing your perspective as a specialist. That's really helpful to me too. So thank you for that. Well, Jordan, this was such a great episode. I, you know, I just think it's so great that when a general pediatrician and a specialist can get together and talk about these common concerns that parents have, it really helps me. Obviously, I know it helps so many of our our listeners today. Is there a final message that you would have for everyone listening? Yeah, I think, I mean, tubes appreciate how simple and easy it is from a surgical perspective, but also I think it's important uh, to to pass on how rewarding it is uh, as a surgeon to do this procedure, even though it's not that difficult. From my perspective, I've seen children that come in with very poor communication skills because of hearing loss because of fluid in their ear, and they catch up so quickly when this is the only thing that's holding them back. And it's just such a pleasure to have the parents come in, and they're so happy, and their kid now has like 35 words, and they only had five or maybe even less before I saw them, and it's only been a month. And it's like, whoa, this is like a totally different kid, and it's such a rewarding, uh, great experience. Uh, And generally, the parents are super happy, and the kid is just running around and had no idea that anything was done to them, and it's just it's just great. Um, so obviously, I don't think that everyone needs uh, tubes, but in the right, uh, appropriately selected patient, I think it's just a wonderful thing. And, you know, we talked about that in the other episode, too, that whenever you do go to a specialist, they are going to guide you on what are our options to see, what are we monitoring? It doesn't mean automatic ENT, automatic tubes, but it's so great to have the team effort. For my practice, too, when I have a child get the tubes in when they really did need it and it needed to happen, oh, the speech development, like you said, so quick and it's just so nice to know well here was the reason we can help do that we were able to intervene and it is a team effort and i'm just again so glad that you could join us today to talk about all this yeah thanks so much for having me it's a pleasure to be here and i hope to connect again soon and everyone please make sure to listen to our other episode that we released today on tonsils and adenoids i will be having jordan back to talk about other topics for ear nose and throat concerns so if you have any questions or suggestions make sure to dm me at pizza.talk on instagram thank you jordan for joining us thank you for tuning in for this week's episode as always please leave a review share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, PedsDocTalk TV. We'll talk to you soon. You made it halfway through an episode, so you must be loving the show. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel where I share answers to all of the common topics submitted to me regarding child health, development, and debunking all that misinformation you hear online. My goal is for PDT to be a one-stop shop for your searching needs. Bye-bye late night Googling. So make sure to go to YouTube and search Peds Doc Talk TV. Hit that subscribe button and binge watch all the amazing episodes and episodes to come. Have suggestions for future videos? Make sure to chat in the community section on my YouTube channel.